After more than a decade of freelance directing assignments at such theaters as MCC, Hartford Stage, and Williamstown, today's guest was part of the founding triumvirate behind off-off-Broadway's The Flea Theater, where he has produced and directed works by Mac Wellman, A.R. Gurney, Roger Rosenblatt, Jonathan Reynolds, Elizabeth Suedos, Will Eno, and Ann Nelson, among many others. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm very happy to spend an hour with the Artistic Director of the Flea Theatre, Jim Simpson. I'm very happy to be here too, Howard. Hey, Jim. Now, you'll probably be unhappy because every time we talk, I bring this up. Oh. But when you first announced the formation of the Flea Theatre, mm-hmm. you said this theatre was going to exist for five years and go away. That's right. And – you just announced that you've bought a building <laughs> and you're going into a capital campaign to outfit it. So you have gone from the idea of this should be something meaningful and fleeting mm-hmm. and then everyone goes on to something else to we are an institution and there are very, very few off-off-Broadway companies mm-hmm. that can talk about having a home. Mm-hmm. It's a big, broad question but – can you talk about the evolution? Well, I think we started it with the idea that it was going to close in five years, or at least that we were going to stop it, mostly because of the idea of uh, an anticipation of having to deal finally with all the non-artistic challenges, boards, funding, all the stuff that actually isn't a great deal of fun. Uh, the Flea would be about my fourth theater that I'd been the artistic director of, and I really wanted to just do this as an effort and without having to worry about any of those other issues. And so five years was – I thought I did the numbers on a little Excel sheet and I thought we can make it go for five years. And then at that point, we will say, see ya. And that was our intention. And then 9-11 happened and that kind of changed – 9-11 happened we – the end of the lease was in April and 9-11, of course, happened in September. So we weren't quite done. Yeah, it was really the five-year point mm-hmm. was right when that hit. And we should explain for people who have not been to the flea that you are downtown oh, yeah. and you are close to – Yeah, we're in, in that – we're in Tribeca. That zone. So we're, yeah. we're downtown, yeah. So on, uh, we had two plays in rep, maybe 45 performing artists working that week at the flea and a dance company opening that night on September 11th. So we had a lot of activity going on and we were just about broke and uh, our funding uh, was just about done and then we were completely shut down. And I thought, all right, this is the end of that, a little earlier ending than we anticipated. And when you say shut down, shut down because people couldn't get to literally, the theater. Yeah. Literally. You, finally, the guy that was doing the uh, the dance show, he put all of his money into this thing and he, uh, he finally – I think we were the first show open downtown. We opened a week afterwards. He faxed invitations and that's what got people through the barricades basically that wanted to see the show because otherwise his dancers were going to go someplace else and he was cooked. So he got his show on. So, hmm. But now the mm-hmm. decision to buy a building because yeah. as you say, in contrast to all of those things you didn't think you wanted, you have a board. Oh, yeah. When you have a building, you have significant fundraising. Now, it's my mm-hmm. understanding that you've bought the building outright but you're doing a, a campaign to outfit it. Mm-hmm. Um you take on a lot of responsibilities when you are oh, yeah, a real no, estate owner rather than a tenant. Definitely. But it's responsibilities that an off-off-Broadway theater – doing this, I figured out some things where I guess our rent at the flea has increased 400 percent in the 14 years. Hmm. So uh, little theaters, if you're on a rental scheme, you really can't survive. And we thought my – what happens is I dreaded getting a board and then the board were, were the ones that said – it's time to take the next step with this institution. It's really time to uh, to take it to the next level. And part of our the Flea's mandate was to uh, raise the standard of off-off-Broadway production, basically put in nice dressing rooms and good bathrooms and comfortable seats. I mean basics that I thought at that time back in 96 were lacking in a lot of uh, – Venues, right? So but the bathrooms are downstairs. You don't have to cross the stage, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. and share them with the with the actors mm-hmm. or any of that. Mm-hmm. And they work, and the heat works, and the air conditioning works. And actually, there are dressing rooms that are proper that have some have sinks, and there's a shower and separate cans for the actors. I mean, the basics that you expect anyplace else. And I felt working off off Broadway that that um, no one really gets paid any significant money. So you need to at least offer the proper working conditions to do adventurous work. That's the idea. That was the initial idea with the fleet. 
Well, we'll come all the way back around to the flea. Okay. Let's yeah, talk let's... about Jim Simpson because <laughs> right. you grew up in Hawaii, born and raised, yeah. and you which island? Uh, Oahu. And it's my understanding that even now the um, there's not a vast amount of professional theater. There's I'm aware of you know very high level community theater mm-hmm. um, and, and amateur theater. So where did the theater impulse come from? Because you, in fact, you were a child actor. Where yeah. were you getting your gigs? <laughs> it was it was a lucky deal. I there was a was I'm trying to remember. Roger Smith was a producer. I think he was was he married to Anne Margaret? I think he might have been. That certainly name All sounds right. right. So he was bringing in bus and truck companies into playing the HIC, which is uh, in downtown Honolulu. There's an exact copy of the Eisenhower Theater in Washington. Exact copy. And 1,200 seats, exactly the same. And in this theater, he was bringing in bus and truck companies of various musicals. And that year, they were doing uh, Bye Bye Birdie and with um, – shoot, I'm trying to remember who did it. I don't remember. I'll remember in a minute. And my brother, who was 12, said, I'm going to audition because I think I can pass as a teenager. And my mother said, you have to take Jimmy along. And we went down to the theater and they put us on stage and said – Sing happy birthday as loud as you can and I did and uh, Donald Yap, the musical director, said, do you get hangovers? And I said, I had no idea what he was talking about and I said, no. And he said, great. You got the job. And I was playing little Randolph McAfee in uh, Bye Bye Birdie and so that started. were they just – they would go from town to town and no, cast? No, they only play – they basically came into Honolulu uh-huh. and they would – nearly everyone was from the mainland. Occasionally – all the juveniles though had to be from Hawaii. So that it was a natural market for moi. Interesting. So what what other shows were you in after this obviously stunning rendition of Happy <laughs> Birthday? Uh, let's see. Uh, Sound of Music with Jane Powell, uh, Carousel with John Raitt, um, Fiddler in the Roof with uh, Theodore Bacall. So I my original thing was basically moving into real solid uh, musical theater. Sang, danced, did all that stuff. Fascinating. Because <laughs> unexpected, yeah. <laughs> what, well, it's, what's unexpected, it, it's unexpected that you had that extraordinary opportunity mm. because of the new, unique producing pattern that obviously was prevailing mm-hmm. in Hawaii at that time. But to go from that as a child, and, and I don't know how you define child, but your official bio then says, as a teenager, worked with Jerzy Grotowski in Poland. Yeah, they go- so how do you get from John Raitt in Honolulu to experimental and very progressive theater in Poland? The Well, I love doing the musical theater, but the John Raitt thing died, horrible death. Hawaiian audiences did, just couldn't relate to Carousel, particularly that production, whereas Theater Raquel, they loved it. So I, I was experiencing some uh, really interesting working situations that sometimes they were optimal – Sometimes they were more challenging and I noticed that directors had a lot to do with that and I think I was – I must have been uh, 17 or 18 and saw Towards a Poor Theater and I thought it was the coolest book ever and the whole idea that it was non-commercial because I was – as a young person in Hawaii, I was doing all commercial work. No training really. I was doing television and all this other stuff as an actor and I thought that sounds – Something so soulful and so – the photographs are so frightening and interesting that I really want to check out what that's about. And then there was a um, – Kuszewski Foundation had a um, uh, sort of a summer program in Poland and that's where I got uh, in all that stuff. And what was your parents' take on all of this? It's one thing for mom to say, Donald, if you're going to audition, take Jimmy. It's another thing <laughs> to say – Okay, go to Poland on this summer program. They, uh, I'm one of five. <laughs> so, so they didn't miss you? <laughs> no, they didn't. And uh, the funny thing about my parents, they not stage parents at all. They, uh, they had their own full lives, and it was something that Jimmy liked to do. So Jimmy went off and did that sort of thing. And uh, they really, it wasn't that they weren't paying attention really but it was – I was dealing with adults and supervised and all that stuff. So they thought it was great. The Grotowski thing, it's 19. So that's – it's a late teenager that I was over there. So mm-hmm. I was already in college at that point. And uh, no, they they said, you want to do this? Go right ahead. Hmm. Now undergraduate was 
BU. BU. Yeah. yeah. So this was, as you said, it was a summer off if you were yeah. 19, either after your freshman or sophomore yep. year, I assume. Yep. What was the experience of being thrust into a, a different kind of theater? You obviously had the foundation from having read the book, yeah. but obviously a different culture, different style of theater than you'd worked in. Oh, it was completely, you know, this goes back pre, I mean, it's 1976. So it's way back when in Poland. And at that point, the theater all over was extremely vibrant because the rest of the culture was not. And it was one of their main outlets. So it was not, there was the Teatro Spolczesny. And I think we worked with probably five or six different groups. And then uh, the main thing was actually working with Krzyzewski. And he was at that point doing his holiday things, which were paratheatrical or extra theatrical sort of activities. But we got to work with uh, – we worked with him, Ludwig Flaschen and the main uh, actors in the company doing what they called uh, – I think that was his third actor workshop, which was all the plastique, all the – all that real Grotowski training, which is when you're, when you're 19, physically you can do all this stuff and it was amazing. It – life-changing. It was great. Well, you just used two words – I'll confess to not knowing what does paratheatrical or extra theatrical mean. Well, you've seen the movie uh, My Dinner with Andre, haven't you? Mm-hmm. So he's he's really describing paratheatrical, which is originally Grotowski was uh, uh, via negativa, which is reducing theater down to its most essential elements, which is finally a performer and an audience, and then what transpires between the two of them. Everything else, costumes, lights, set, whatever, nothing really matters. Paratheatrical is he finally said, forget the difference between these two. We are all doing action. And so that's when they were running off doing these strange things around a castle or hmm. more like I think what we describe as a happening or something else. Or site-specific theater. They really – everyone is performing. No mm-hmm. one is no one is just being a spectator in that passive room. Oh. Hmm. So that's why it's paratheatrical. And he did this uh, for a number of years and that's what um, Andre Gregory is talking about in the movie. Huh. So we didn't do we didn't do any of that stuff. We did the straight old what the um, what the lab theater had been doing for years, decades previous to that. Hmm. You spend a summer doing that. Mm-hmm. How do you go back to BU? Ah, it's hilarious. So, well, I was not alone. Bruce McVitie, who's a really fine actor, oh, and, sure. and Stacy Klein, who also has Double Edge Theater, she's continued doing that work up in Massachusetts. She has a farm. Uh, they live off the farm and they do this Eastern European type work. They show at La Mama every couple of years. They're an extraordinary company. Hmm. She's kept the work going. So I got back to BU and um, so say, hey, everybody, let's start doing this work, which is – it's pretty physically demanding. And I got called into the dean's office when a couple of students couldn't walk up the stairs because they were – their hamstrings were so sore. <laughs> and he said, you will work on the crucible for the next two years. You will not do any of this other work. Hmm. You will do what I say and none of this other funny stuff, Mr. Simpson. And uh, that's that's when I started my first theater company outside of school as a an attempt to, OK, I'll do my schoolwork, but I'm going to still do my other thing outside. Well, that's – would seem to be the point at which you decided maybe you weren't an actor. You were a producer or at least a director. I loved acting, but I thought I worked with a couple of directors that really made the experience extraordinary and about something. I mean, BU at that time was Maxine Klein, and it was actually a real Marxist-based uh, school. The politics were always involved. Mm-hmm. It was always your objective was about why are you doing something, um, not simply what your character wanted to achieve in a scene. I found that after my professional experience, just like, you know. Fabulous oxygen to be working in. Loved it. And also you have to imagine I'm a young guy hmm. and the, the, we're going through uh, Nixon and all the rest of that and all the stuff after that. So it was – that was the exact grounding that I really wanted and was attracted to. Hmm. So uh, acting – I love acting. Acting is really fun. I've done it occasionally since. But uh, directing is something that I thought, oh, I'll have more control over my career. It's an illusion. But uh, it's a fun illusion. <laughs> So when you got out of BU, did you pursue acting or did you immediately look to go to Yale? I went to BU as a director. So I was oh, already – undergraduate, undergraduate director. Oh, I didn't directed. know that. OK. Yeah. And then um, – oh, no. I knew – I knew – what? I was 21. I'd done some avant-garde work uh, in BU, gotten a, a couple of little reviews here and there. 
but really wasn't prepared to hit New York. I just was too young. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'd heard about Yale. I'd had friends that had gone there. And I thought, oh, if I can get into there, that'll I'll be moving my way down the East Coast and that'll make sense before I hit the city. And then applied right – I applied immediately and then luckily got in. So I got the tail end of Bruce Dean and then the transition into Lloyd Richards, which was totally fascinating as well. Really <clears throat> great actually. So this is right 79, 80, 81 yeah, would be yeah, the, the period. Yeah. yeah. So I got uh, 78 exactly. So I got a year of Bruce Dean who I'd read his books and, and he also was into the kind of the auteur, director-driven theater. So it's perfect for me. And then the transition into Lloyd, which was really about new plays and the director not being the uh, the center of the universe, which I hadn't encountered and also found it to be – that was great. It was really, really good. So I, I lucked out. In the student years at Yale in a directing program, you mm -hmm. do a lot of directing. Oh, yeah. So what was the kind of work either that you – were you – did you get to choose your own work or were you told work on this? Well, you – I think when Brewsting was there, I got to choose my own work. In my second year, I did a uh, all-male Hamlet with uh, Mitchell Lichtenstein, Fred Melamed, and Harry Condolian was my Ophelia, uh, the playwright. And uh, we were rehearsing it secretly because I guess I knew that I was going to get into trouble. And I <laughs> you got, couldn't have been worried about the estate. <laughs> no, but no, got called in by the dean and he said, why aren't you using any women? This is wrong. And I said, oh, come on. Shakespeare, what I'm interested in is this idea of the – of men playing these women. I mean, I think there's all there's a big line of comedy that's involved in all this and as well as the whole strange sexuality of that. So uh, uh, please let me do this. And he said, absolutely not. You're a student. And uh, I remember it was a – it's something that happens probably to every student. You sit in it. You sit there and you go, you're right. Right now I am a student and I can't wait till I get out of school. <laughs> but it's sort of fascinating because – I was seeing certainly the work at the rep at the time, which mm -hmm. was Brustein. The Brustein was also the dean. There, there was an associate dean. Right. So was was it Brustein calling you? No, in this was Lloyd. No? This was Lloyd. Oh, this is Lloyd. This saying is my you second year, and then okay. this is our verse project. And I was working on Hamlet, and then he said, "No, you you must stop that work." And this was at the point. I mean, I was three weeks into it. That which was pretty deep, and it was good too. Hmm. But um, he said, no, I don't want to see it. I don't want to know anything from it. Listen, he's a new dean. There's this guy, Jim Simpson, who's doing something and he's not using any of the women that he should be using. <clears throat> We're going to you know, lasso him and get him to do what we want him to do. So did the production shut down or did you put women into it? It shut down and I put women into it and it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so. so what other kind of work did you do under the strictures of Yale? Oh, well, then I did uh, – my thesis was uh, Benton Cosa, which I later did in New York. Well, I was going to say Benton Cosa was a piece did, – did you do that more than twice? It seemed seemed to me like I was aware of that piece being done multiple I, times. I did a version up at – I did a version at the Yale Summer Cabaret. I did a version at Williamstown and then I did uh, – I did it as my thesis at Yale and then I did it in New York finally. So it took a while. Can you talk a little about that piece? Oh, it's a – I, I also, when I was a teenager, I studied in Japan at Keio University because I was really – I grew up in a Nisei neighborhood, which is second generation uh, Japanese neighborhood. And uh, so Japanese language was easy for me versus French, which was very challenging. And went and studied abroad when I was 15 and lived in a traditional house, saw No and saw Kabuki and Kabuki is just the best. Hmm. It's the best theater form. I mean it's – Except for World War II, unbroken really since uh, about the 17th century. So it's an old theater practice that you can see old school stuff that they did to get over. And it's also a very popular theater form even though at this point it's become uh, less so these days. But it's sort of become operatic and, and codified. My mother gave me this book of uh, translations. Oh, I'm trying to remember the guy. But he's the guy that runs the department out of Brooklyn College. Um, but I, I'll remember his name maybe. Fabulous colloquial translation of a play by Kwatake Mokuami, which is about all these thieves and it's a it's like a, a criminal thing. It's like a criminal movie actually. Hmm. Very, very funny, very knowing and each of the, the acts have a completely different theatrical style and that's purposeful because they wanted to 
really give their audience everything they possibly could and delight them. And I read this and then I read, met Dr. Ernst out in um, – who's a kabuki specialist back in Honolulu, talked to him about it and then um, said, I can't do old-style kabuki. I can't fake it. But with my Grotowski training, I actually in terms of uh, handling the physicality and coming up with an exuberant physical thing, that's what I'll go for. And uh, so that was Yale and I ran the Yale Cabaret too. So my last year, I, Keith Rudine and I were running that. And uh, so I was doing my producing thing as well as directing a hell of a lot. I mean at, at Yale, I think I did uh, probably 30 things. Hmm. I was really busy and each summer I ran into and yelled at uh, Nikos during one of my directing classes. Nikos Shakaropoulos. Yeah, because he was extremely time. arrogant and was too critical about my work and so I said, bring your work into my cla into class and I'll critique yours. How about that? And I, I thought, well, that's the end of this relationship. And then he hired me at the he hired me at the end of the summer. So he he was a cool guy. Hmm. I lost my temper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you, you, it, it it sounds like uh, you had no problem pissing off authority as a young man. It's it's part. I don't know whether it's being one of five or whether it's being a kid, you know, the sixties and all that stuff. It was you know that's how we were supposed to play it. You know. Well. <laughs> What I'm fascinated by is we're discussing all of this international and and theoretical stuff and as you began moving into freelancing mm -hmm. at Williamstown, you know, then you're doing Citizen Tom Paine and Summer in Smoke oh, and yeah. seemingly conventional theater. Sure. Is that – did you have to make an adjustment were you frustrated by having to move away from no. all of that other stuff you've done? You have done? to remember my earliest background was doing True. Bye Bye Birdie. So I had the – I have a funny perspective on theater where I think, hey, if it's good, it's all good. And avant-garde stuff is can, – can be pretty terrific as well as – I mean Williams can really kick it. And so I, I think the first thing I did at uh, Williamstown was actually a pinter play. And I'd never encountered that, the homecoming with Stocker Channing and Dwight Schultz and stuff. Mm -hmm. I was in my 20s and that was fabulous. I loved it. So uh, I mean great writing and great uh, great pieces are great pieces regardless of uh, the box that we try to put them into. Hmm. As a freelancer, mm -hmm. were you being called and asked, would you direct this play mm -hmm. or were you getting calls – from artistic directors saying, what play would you like to do? I'd like to have you here. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful if, if it were the former? The, no. I, my experience is luckily I'd work with Lloyd and the real working opportunities at Williamstown, they never asked me what I wanted to do. It was, it was Nico saying, we have this, we have this, we have this. He's looking for a balanced season and that's what he was going for. So it wasn't – you didn't propose. It, it was just given to you. Uh, the other freelance opportunities were mostly new play-based and that was – that comes through literary managers and artistic directors. They see your work in something else and they think, well, he might have the skill set to be able to apply to this writer. Um, that's how it worked. I don't think – I the only person that said, what do you want to do, Jim, was Ann Bogart and she only lasted a season at Trinity and I didn't – I was – I think we were having a baby at that point. So I said, I can't really come up. Maybe next season I can. But that's the only time an artistic director has asked, what do you want to do? I, I and think, you couldn't do it. <laughs> and I couldn't do it. So uh, that's – I was hoping that that was going to happen and I, at least in my career, I've, I've had to produce my own work in order to run after the things that I wanted to do. So how did you – at this point, now we were sort of moved into the late 80s. We mm. met when you did a couple of shows in a couple of seasons at Hartford Stage. Um, how did you move towards finding the opportunity to do the shows specifically that you wanted to do? Well, it was always happening at the same time. I mean it's a little like the BU thing of, well, I'll do the schoolwork and I'll also have a little theater company outside. Um, while I was working at Hartford Stage, I was still uh, – operating uh, a theater in New York and when that closed – What was uh, that? That was called Cozo down on Essex Street and then um, and then I think around that time I met Mac Wellman and 
I saw – I was doing a, a short play up at EST and saw this extraordinary one act and was – I think I had somebody that I was with and I said, yeah, my piece is OK. Wait till you see this piece. This piece has got so much going on and I was going on about it and Yolanda, Mac's wife, was sitting in front of me and she said, you got to meet him. And so met Mac and then uh, did a show out at Baca, which um, – where Susan Laurie Park started and all that stuff, this little tiny theater in Brooklyn. And began doing Max work. That's also where Kyle Chapulis was the TD there. So that's that's when all that other relationship and networking started out. Hmm. And you began to do more work in New York yeah. at this point because Road to Nirvana at Circle Rep in 91, uh, Mac Wellman's Murder of Crows at Primary Stages in 92. Mm-hmm. And then probably the show that really – brought a lot of attention to you, which was Nixon's Nixon oh, yeah. no, for MCC. Yeah. Um, Nixon's Nixon, which you've had the opportunity to then go back and do with the original cast mm-hmm. years later. Um, again, now that was a project you were offered. It wasn't something that you exactly. found. Exactly. Um, <laughs> your choice with it was not, as people might so often do, was to cast actors who looked and sounded exactly like Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger. You know, it, they weren't asked to do impersonations per no, se. No, because the, that's like really hard to do in the theater. I think, even though, even the, for those two very iconic characters, and that's that's not that interesting to work on. I mean, either as a director, if as a director you're waiting for them to get their what imitation better. What a bore! And uh, these two guys that we cast, Jerry Bamman and Steve Meller. I'd work with Steve a lot with Mac. And uh, Jerry, I'd admired for years, and uh, no, we were gonna, we had other fish to fry. Mm. Also, the play, we got in the play, and I think for a while they thought that it was not that it wasn't a serious piece of work, but they didn't under, I think they underestimated its comic uh, side. So I remember the first run through that the fellows kind of turned to each other and said, "Wow, this is funny." Hmm. And uh, I was like, yeah, it's really funny. Well, it's interesting. Surprised the writer too. You know, there's there's a very small subset of theatrical literature dealing with Richard Nixon. Mm. Um, Gore Vidal's An Evening with Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. um, Donald Freed's Secret Honor, but not a ton of them. Mm-hmm. So politically, was it the first time out dangerous to, to do that show? Did people come at it? With preconceived notions or indeed saying when it's called Nixon's Nixon, I didn't like Nixon. Why do I want to see a play about Nixon? Yeah, I think it's probably more of that. I think everybody, the antipathy toward Richard Nixon was so great that it, it actually is a marketing problem. But uh, this was also done at MCC's Little Theater down on 28th Street. So we, you know, as usual for a small little venue like that, you do a very good show and then, you know, the sun comes out and the critics shine on you. And, you know, audiences loved it, but then that actually gave us a bump where we – where it had a continued life and did – you know, exceeded its expectations really, which we were very fortunate. But mm. it was two crackerjack actors, a very smart script. So uh, – but I think – and people uh, really got to what – luckily, and I do think the critics had a great deal to do with this, helped uh, people over – I don't want to go see a play about Nixon. I revile him. Hmm. And I think their uh, their acclaim for that particular production was very, very helpful on having it uh, – allowing it to meet its its you know community. Well, in fact, that production moved to a commercial run mm-hmm. at the West Side Arts. Mm-hmm. You had had and, – and maybe there are more but, but jumping back, you had had what I guess was ultimately an aborted – Moved to Broadway early on oh, yeah. with oh, yeah. with Tom Paine. Oh yeah, so my fun. <laughs> what's your what's your relationship to the commercial theater? I mean, you you seem to have mostly operated outside of it, except yeah. in your childhood. <laughs> well, the advantage is because I did it as a kid. Um, the allure of it is not something that is something that is an interesting myth for me to try to get my hands on. I mean, I grew up doing it, so it's great, but it's not, it is what it is. I think the Broadway experience, I love, I mean, I've, I've directed stuff on the victory stage, directed stuff at Lincoln Center, small, tiny things. It's really fun. And, you know, there's a part of me that says, yeah, I'd love to be doing that sort of work. 
But um, no, my whatever. I've been I've been going in different directions and quite happily doing other things without that. Hmm. Yeah, the the citizen, citizen Tom Paine was Howard Fast's uh, thing on Tom Paine, a great historical figure and a pretty interesting play. And that was my I think it was my thirtieth birthday. The uh, producer walked into rehearsal with Richard Thomas, and I'm busy rehearsing. Uh, producers in tears, hugs me. Never a good sign. No, I found that out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hugs me and says, we can't go on. Now, you know, the funding that I was trying to get just doesn't happen, so we're done. And I remember feeling so bad for him. Hmm. <laughs> and then about maybe two days later, you go, wait a minute. <laughs> hmm. Why am I feeling bad for that guy? So, Interesting. Yeah. Jumping back on, on Nixon's Nixon, we spoke about the fact that you, you ultimately did multiple incarnations of Benton Cozo mm-hmm. and presumably along the way were able to grow it and, oh, yeah. and oh, explore yeah. it in different ways. So when you went back 10 years later on Nixon's Nixon with the same actors, mm-hmm. which is unusual, mm-hmm. um, especially, was it to simply recreate what you had or did you re-explore that play and had history changed enough that the play said different things? Boy, I think – yeah, we were in the middle of Bush years, so – which was different than the uh, – than earlier. So anything during that time had a different political uh, – uh, It's true. So first time out would have been the Clinton years and yeah. second time out was was, was, uh, was the Bush. Bush. And so anything political during the Bush years I think had a certain frisson to it. And interest, actually, particularly a president that's gone mad. Um, not that President Bush actually went mad, maybe. I don't know. But uh, no, there was a different time, a different perspective. And no, I those two actors, I do it at the drop of a hat to work with those two guys. They're a heck of a lot of fun. And I love the piece. So, And I like uh, – I really like the MCC guys too. Hmm. So it was uh, – what happened? I think we did a reading for uh, some sort of fundraiser type – board night thing and no, the two guys came back to it years later and they were right on it. So uh, I think everyone looked at each other and said, why aren't we doing this again? And it was like, well, let's put it on the calendar and let's do it. Hmm. So no, revisiting things is always great. Um, I really enjoy doing that. If you're lucky, if you're a director and you get to revisit. Well, in my introduction, I said that you were part of the triumvirate that founded the flea Mm -hmm. and you have now in the course of conversation mentioned the other points of the triangle, Mm -hmm. Mac Wellman and Kyle Chapoulis. Mm -hmm. What was the driving notion? As you said, you wanted to have a theater that was was perhaps a better caliber of off-off-Broadway but was – were there artistic ambitions specifically? That you had at the time. No, it started actually with the producerial thing. We had just done – the three of us were driving up from Washington after having done a site-specific thing with Annie Hamburger in, uh, at the Smithsonian Institute. And we were simply just talking about producing and about um, – they said, hey, Jim, you haven't been producing in a long time. And actually, I'd stopped working off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway because I did a Mac Wellman show in a theater I won't name and everyone in the cast got sick. Everyone was in their 30s, 40s, 50s and the conditions just were so filthy and cold and we're – I think I got paid $675 for about six weeks of work. So the money is a joke and the – you know, you say, all right, well, we're doing it for the art and all that stuff. We got a great New York Times review. Uh, people were coming to see it yet everyone got ill doing it. And I thought, you know, I'm asking all my friends and my colleagues to come and work for nothing. It doesn't make any sense anymore. This must be a young person's game. And stopped. And then uh, worked with Fox on getting um, – I really love New Dramatist and was a resident director there. And I thought, you know, there must be a way – I think I was working with Eduardo Machado on something. and said, hey, Eduardo, this – you should really think about rewriting this part of the second act. And he said – I'm teaching so much. I have no time to do that. I'd love to, but I don't have the time. I got to make money. So I thought, oh, you know, there's got to be a way of getting some money in the pockets of these guys doing what they do other than teaching, which is uh, occupational hazard, really. And I got Fox uh, movies to basically uh, allow me to pick five writers at um, New Dramatist members, pay them 10000 bucks to write a first screenplay. And all it was was a first look situation with uh, Fox. So I ran that program for a while, hmm. which was uh, kind of combining my Lloyd Richards love of new writing and also, yeah, let's get some money in there. 
in their pockets and it was also my chance to do – I've worked occasionally out in LA. I'm a DGA member and all that stuff. Worked for HBO before. But this was a chance to work producerially in that regard and I found it interesting and then finally not so interesting. Well, the inevitable question is did any of those screenplays get made? Nah, not a one. But that wasn't actually – it wasn't really the intention. The intention was to put some money in their pockets. All the writers own their work at the end of the day and whether they've used thinking from any of those screenplays to end up in any of their other work, I bet they did and they got paid for it. So what's what's the downside of that? That's very clever. But you did that but then oh, so you I'm, said let's yeah. start it, you know, you so and Mac guys, and Kyle these guys said, said why don't you why don't you think about doing it, Jim? And uh so I said uh, well, maybe I'd been away from it for a while and I thought, well, maybe we will and maybe we'll do it We'll do it with a different perspective. Instead of really running after a narrow aesthetic agenda, why don't we uh, really see about getting working conditions done? So I spent about four years looking for a theater, finally found one and then, uh, you know, then we took the lease out, renovated it and uh, it was an old movie theater. It was the collector for living cinema uh, before we took it over. But a lot of sweat equity and a lot of really careful uh, spending of money to put in bathrooms essentially and uh, put in a new air conditioning system and heating. But just to make it so that you could do the adventurous work of off-off-Broadway, which I adore, and not feel as if uh, you're getting in the neck both ways in your pocketbook as well as the time that you're spending there. And for the audience too, the idea was to um, – allow the adventure to happen on stage and not in, is the ceiling going to fall in or are the lights going to go out during the show? Founding it with Mac Wellman, obviously mm-hmm. you had one playwright aboard and yeah. you certainly were originally, doing his work. Yeah, originally Eduardo was also part of it. Originally the idea on it was a bunch of artists getting together to work in a sort of a loose uh, collaborative idea, which wouldn't that be great if that could work? But mm-hmm. it, at least in my instance – uh, everyone was approaching middle age. We all had our agendas and putting a lot of time in a little small theater is – ends up for some people and for – it can be more risky than anything else because there's no good side at the end of it because you don't ever make any money off it. It's all risk and no uh, no payback. And everybody mm-hmm. else, they all – writers in particular have agendas which don't need to, and shouldn't be exclusive. They should be doing their work everywhere and not exclusive to a particular theater. Hmm. So, no, Mac was in it from the beginning. And uh, more importantly, Kyle, um, not that Mac wasn't important, but uh, Kyle helped me design the theater. And a lot of my uh, – he and I have been working closely together for decades. And we've come to really know each other's work and share a particular minimalist aesthetic and also a feeling about what a theater should be like. So he was very, very helpful. And it has continued to be so. You spoke at – beginning almost immediately about the effect of 9-11 on the theater. Mm-hmm. Was that first five years in any way fundamentally different from the subsequent 10? Did that change? Oh, yeah. No, there was a real – I was running the theater with a, a, a technical director and a part-time office person, no other staff. And – with a group of young people at that point, I was really committed to working with uh, the resident company, the Bats. I discovered that unlike Williamstown where they're put in an apprentice role, in New York City, uh, you, there's a real opportunity with young people in theater. And I really became very, very interested in that. Well, can you explain that a little more before we go on? Well, it, it – uh, and I think it might have to do with my background too. I think working in a in a working situation in a theater, you really learn a great deal. I don't know that you learn that much in school. I think you do learn a lot, but I don't know that it's all positive, really good information. I'd grown up working in the theater and I'd run and, and taught uh, stage combat and Grotowski stuff up at uh, Williamstown in their apprentice program and it's a very vibrant apprentice program. And I thought originally the flea I'd do a similar thing. I started it and then suddenly realized there's more talent and something more interesting than just having these kids sweep up the place and watch other people do the work. They're actually interesting all on their own. And um, I began to get more intrigued with what they could do and what they were looking for and just who the heck and what is a young company. So explain how you form that young company. Is it a new group every year? No, some 
Some people have uh, – sometimes it depends. It changes from year to year. Sometimes you have to re-audition to remain in the company. Mm-hmm. Um, usually that's the case. Or if you happen to be in a show while the auditions are going on, you don't have to audition because you're on stage doing your thing. Some actors stay in uh, for one show only. Other actors stay in for as many. I think the longest someone has stayed is about four years. So it's different because it's an odd situation. It's a volunteer. So there's no pay involved. There's great opportunity. Um, and there's really hard work in the sense of building shows and acting actually. But um, it's an interesting transition usually for a lot of people between school and finally landing a paying gig. If I recall correctly, in the earlier years, mm-hmm. they were understudying parts um, and maybe taking on smaller roles. But certainly, more recently, you've done entire shows simply with that company. Yeah, Is this, that – Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean and certainly the and Gurney not, play not right really now. That's really true. The Benson Cosa one I did in New York was all Bats. Got it. So, uh, and, and where does the name come from? Uh, bats? Yeah. It kind of comes from Mac Wellman. When we were talking about different names for the theater, he said, what about the Bat Theater? <laughs> and I thought, well, I like Flea because it's small and uh, kind of itchy. And Bat is also as Fu in Chinese, which is, means good fortune. So I thought, oh, it's really good to name the, uh, name the company Bat. They originally called the Fur Balls. <laughs> But they hated that. They didn't like putting it on their resumes. <laughs> yes, that would not be something they'd want to keep in the Playbill bio. So uh, no, so the bats just kind of stuck. Because hmm. uh, it's it's interesting. Certainly, I've seen a couple of Pete Gurney's pieces, which have been entirely the bats company, even to the point that the most recent one, you have alternating casts. Yeah, I mean, Pete saw the auditions and said they're all good. Can we do it? Can we do it? And foolishly, I said, Yeah, that's great because it's more opportunity. It's great. Not realizing that I had to direct the play twice at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, no, he – Pete really gets the idea. I think he, he like I feel, that um, if you do it right, if, the, if they're playing the correct part in terms of their age and experience, they can be as good as anybody else in town. And also, if we want to get a young audience in there, they've got to see themselves on stage. I mean, for all the education you do with young people about theater, if they see themselves – They'll get intrigued with theater. We're talking about Pete Kearney and it's interesting. When you talk about Mac Wellman, who's <laughs> always been sort of, you know, at the forefront of the experimental and off off Broadway and work, you know, dense work with language, et cetera, et cetera. Now Pete Kearney is in most people's minds as establishment, white bread, a playwright, as you could ask. And I say that not because I feel that way, but it is the popular perception. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You gave Pete a place where he could do work unlike what he'd been doing for years. Yeah, no, he's, uh, you know, uh, I think because my odd experience, I don't really put him in a box. I mean, I met mm-hmm. Pete in, the, in a kitchen up at Williamstown, and he'd seen my life as a dream. And we talked about Calderon for about two and a half hours. And then I started asking him about other writers. It turned out the guy is ex- extremely well-read and so sharp, actually, about avant-garde theater. So uh, I thought, well, the preconceived thing that I'd been told about him was, guess what? It's not true at all. And the work that he's given us at the Flea has been very sophisticated and uh, certainly not uh, – not like what I would call a Mac Wellman stream, which is really poetry-driven and uh, dense. Um, Pete comes from another tradition. It's a different generation. And uh, it's just as challenging in a certain way. And, you know, he got he got entranced with our little theater and has written six plays for us. So what's not to like? And he's a great guy. <laughs> what's interesting is how many of the plays that Pete has done for you – have had strong political overtones. Mm. And you made the comment earlier about the environment at BU, yeah. which, where, which was overtly <laughs> political and that didn't interest you. And it's not only Pete's work that mm. has been political. There certainly is a sense that there's, a, there's political work running, running in the veins down at the flea. Is that true? true? Oh, I would love it if it were true. I would love that. <laughs> No, because I, it was really studying with Maxine Klein that said 98% of people aren't interested in theater at all and it's because it doesn't address their lives. The 2% that go to the theater, that percentage that actually go, what about everybody else and what about their lives? 
also with the notion, and Brustein shared this too, which is, and it's part of that epic or that time, theater can change perspectives. It can be a revolutionary activity. And certainly, I mean, I think life is great and all that stuff, but I think we could all use a little sharpening up and a, a reexamining of our perspectives and, and how we look at how we live together, which is essentially theater is a social art, and examine how we basically live together and wh- how we do it. So that's political, yeah? <laughs> there is the assumption that artists, by their nature, are liberal. And there's often the question of mm. where is conservative theater? Mm-hmm. You made what many considered an unusual choice mm-hmm. when you produced Jonathan Reynolds' play, sure. Girls in Trouble, because Jonathan does write from a conservative perspective and he has spoken about the fact that he thinks it's made it more difficult for his work to be seen, is that so many of the theaters have their political bent and don't want to show off his. Mm-hmm. Was that an issue for you? No. I think Jonathan's play was really interesting and provocative and the theater is a – safe place to really be encountering provocative things regardless of the political persuasion and the point of view, be a conservative or liberal. I do think artists tend to be liberal because we're humanists. Otherwise, why would we do art? Because if we didn't believe in other human beings and interested in society in that sense in a positive way, that's easy. But I think um, most theaters are sort of inherently conservative. I think the reason I got Pete's first play was it dealt very positively with the Palestinian point of view. And most theaters, as we know in New York, are going to be very sensitized to that issue. And, um, hey, we're off off-Broadway. It's our obligation to be adventurous and to uh, run after these things and let the audience decide where it goes. It's a piece of theater. It's actually not a demonstration um, out on the streets. It's something different. And so, no, I'm very intrigued by that and feel that the – Particularly off our Broadway, its proper place in our um, in the cultural landscape is to be um, a place where things that we're encountering on a daily life and what you might call political cern- concerns should be raised and should be both examined and uh, played with. Obviously, we can't talk about every show that you've done at the Flea. Good, <laughs> fifteen years. There's, there's no, not the opportunity. But, but I have to ask you about sure. again this watershed moment in mm-hmm. the life of the company, which was nine eleven and the play, the guys. Mm-hmm. Um, it's my understanding that you actually urged the writer to write the play. Can you can you talk a little about how that play came to be? Yeah, it it uh so after 9/11 we're shut down and I thought this is the end of our little theater and the young company uh actually Sam Marks who's a very well regarded young playwright now came up to me and said we have to respond to the attacks with what we do and I thought you know you're a kid you have no idea I don't understand what happened but he wanted to do a piece like a Moises Kaufman interview uh people in our neighborhood and I said I have to find you a journalist happened to be at a dinner um met Ann Nelson and said, I have some kids that want to write a show about 9-11 and about the attacks and about our neighborhood specifically. Do you know anyone that can help them with some journalistic tools? And she said, oh, write a play. I'd like to write a play. I think that's really fascinating. And I see it as a large canvas thing of all the workers that were in um, the towers and their families and all this. And I thought, that's a – my response I think to her was that's a very large canvas. And I think she read between the lines and said, I've also been doing something else. I've been working with a fire captain, writing eulogies for the men that he lost. Um, and I said, that sounds like something that would be very, very interesting. And I think around 12 days later, um, I said, just you just you and the captain. Keep it a really small canvas, a two-hander, and see what you come up with. Not expecting really that uh, that she would – She's a neophyte playwright. I mean, she's a very well-regarded journalist, but not a playwright at that point. Turns out she'd been gunning for it for a long time, like a lot of people do. And uh, 12 days later, got the script and uh, sat in the basement of my little theater and thought, wow, what a gift. Hmm. Uh, what a beautiful expression of it, – it put it into perspective for me, just for the, all the people that have been lost, just 
putting a human face on it, which is the effort of that play to do, um, dealing with a, a trauma like that and how how do you tease out who are these men that are lost and who were they and how can we relate their story to their families and friends and actually in the theater to all of us that actually need to have a sense other than just the oh the sheer horror of it and our new changed world on that's about so how quickly after 911 did you actually produce the guys about i would say maybe about 6 or 7 weeks afterwards wow. pretty quickly and you did it with rotating casts right people would come in and do it for a week or two weeks a little longer than that i mm-hmm. think i think probably around maybe maybe about 3 weeks or so um how did you go about finding them or did in some cases once the word got out did they find you uh a little of both i mean first it was bill murray and sigourney and i married to sigourney so that was easy i brought home the script and said it's extraordinary what do you think and she said oh let's call bill maybe he'll do it and he jumped at the chance which is interesting because everyone hears about bill murray that sometimes you can't even find him to get an answer on things no i got an answer within 24 hours which is really terrific Hmm. and uh then it was um, Anthony LaPaglia and a lot – actually, there's a fellow that's um, very helpful to the flea who's no longer with us, Sam Cohn, who um, – The agent. Yeah, the agent, who uh, really is a – was a keen enthusiast of uh, New York's culture and particularly our little theater too. So uh, and he was a very powerful agent as well. Yeah. So uh, he was very helpful in – Making sure that uh, people saw it and that people that he thought would be terrific in it, um, getting them down to the flea. And they – yes, then they would say, can we do it? And I ran after some people too, thinking they'd be great to do it. And it was a chance also in that perspective about actors also wanted to do something like that young uh, writer slash actor Sam Marks. He wanted to do something with what he does. Mm-hmm. It was a really good impulse. And if that hadn't happened, that, none, none of it would have happened. Well, that's – I mean there's, there's a tremendous irony is that out of this incredible tragedy which could have closed the theater, mm-hmm. this play arose so suddenly mm-hmm. and attracted such attention mm-hmm. both, both for the expression of feeling about the event as well as frankly you were drawing extraordinary people to perform in a very small venue mm-hmm. in an area where people didn't want to venture. That was that was we were doing our job, actually. I mean, I think for me it was a profound thing about watching audiences with that particular piece at that particular time. What a little tiny theater can do with just a few people and about something that's really happened to them in a way that is meaningful and new. And I, you know, talked the talk about it before, and I'd heard the talk about it before. But I really got to experience it. And that's, you know, you asked at the beginning about why is the theater now past five years. At that five-year point, I had a real sort of a change in perspective about, you know, running after art for art's sake and being political and all that good stuff and actually seeing, no, a little theater can actually be really deeply important and they are important. And... They need to be taken out of landlords' hands. And a little theater like the Flea, now that we purchased this building, because a good part of it is government money, guess what? It's going to be there for a very long time and built economically with the idea that it's going to be uh, viable to produce work like the first-time writer of a Columbia journalist professor. Uh, and so other opportunities are going to exist to affect an audience in that way. And I think before the guys happened, I would have said, well, that that would be cool. But now I actually think now in a big city like New York, you really have to have it because the guys, I don't think it would have happened at any other theater in New York. Why? No young company that's pushing the artistic leadership around or prodding them. It doesn't mm-hmm. exist. No small company that also will say, okay, we'll do this and we'll do this immediately with a neophyte playwright and uh, also no small company at that point um, that was able to pull in, luckily, the uh, 
the level of actors that help get the attention. Well, I have to ask you, in the, in the context of all of the work of the mm-hmm. play, you've mentioned Sigourney Weaver, your wife, mm-hmm. is, is an asset to the company. She's on your board, I believe. Yeah. Um, she has worked – she was there not only for the guys. She was in Mrs. Farnsworth. That's right. Um, where she co-starred with John Lithgow. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw the Willino one act with Marissa Tomei. Yeah. Now, these are all people who have always remained committed to theater. They're not movie stars helicoptering in saying yeah. I'd like to try theater mm-hmm. by any stretch of the imagination. But it's the rare 99-seat or smaller theater that can attract actors of that level of recognition. The talent is unquestioned. Mm-hmm. Um, has that been something that you've played upon at times because of what it will do for the company? It's certainly useful. Both of the act- actors that you mentioned are awfully good. Um, but again, part of it was Off-Off-Broadway is supposed to be the place where if the working conditions are right and that goes back to proper dressing rooms and bathrooms – no, it is though. It's important. That's uh, one reason why a lot of other little theaters haven't been able to get really terrific people is they're just appalling conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those guys, they're all hungry to do the same sort of work that the young people are actually interested in doing. And down at the flea, part of it is I don't do an eight performance week. I'm not trying to uh, play that producerial game. I'm thrilled that they're there and a lot of them that are – middle age or whatever, have kids and whatever money they're earning actually uh, with the union contract is probably going toward babysitting. Well, in so. point of fact, to these people, it's irrelevant whether you pay them $50 a week or $500 a week compared to what they could make in Absolutely. television or film. So they're coming, they're coming for the artistic opportunity and for the chance also to uh, do their bit in, a, in New York in a theater. So mm-hmm. – but it's a, it's I found the movie business has changed in the fifteen years, uh, and it's getting that sort of uh, commitment and getting that interest from them is I'm not building the theater's practice on getting. Um, I'd love it if I could get more people like that down and working at the theater, particularly working with the younger actors. But um, it's happy accidents hmm. than something that I think I'm really working toward and. Like Williamstown, like Nikos did, which he made a high art of it, actually. All right. We started talking about the new building. I want to wrap up by asking about the new building. Sure. First of all, what kind of timetable do you think it will be before you begin producing there? Don't quite know yet. I mean, we're meeting with our like, – I don't know. Don't know. It uh, might be really soon, but it might be uh, – it depends on the level of what exactly we're doing, how far we're taking it. The The building site right now is – uh, 38 feet wide, which the present flea is 24 feet wide. So the possibility of having really fabulous entrances and the extent of how far we're going to take um, the possibility of this building, it's not landmarked. So the idea of being able to um, knock it down and come up with a theater complex is something that we're really entertaining the possibility of that. And uh, as well as what do we do if we just – do the funk factor and in the existing building, go in and uh, turn it around and immediately start start doing work there. So we're looking at a bunch of different things. And do you think that the new building will allow you to do work of a type or scale that you haven't been able to do? One of the things that I'm interested in doing there is uh, potentially – one larger space that I think a lot of producers off off Broadway are looking for a very large open space that's flexible. But then the two other ideas are uh, ideas that I've played with in the downstairs theater, which is a really old school stage house idea rather than the flexible idea. Mm-hmm. And the other one that I'm very intrigued about is doing a very small uh, thrust arrangement where the audience is really aware of each other and having in the same building – Three very different sorts of uh, venue instead of the usual sheetrock uh, whatever, movie-style place because I think the you can actually invigorate the theater a great deal on how the theatrical form is done. And we've uh, – the venues in town right now, they're good. 
but there's some really good old school stuff, and particularly the stage house idea is really right for off up, and it allows producing uh, to be much more inexpensive and really creative, and so I'm kind of intrigued with that. Well. Despite the declaration with which you founded the company, I am very glad 15 years later oh, that you. we're sitting here today talking about the Flea Theater. And Jim Simpson, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Oh, my pleasure. It's been fun. Thank you. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY-TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing, and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of the Wing's fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.